This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Seeks Atlanta. to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. John 4, 1 through 26. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we just sang these words that you alone are worthy, that you are deserving of our, of our worship. And God, it's so easy sometimes to, to uh, acknowledge who you are and to praise you for your virtues when uh, we have hearts full of joy, uh, when we have hearts full of excitement. And God, it can be hard when there's time of sorrow, there's a time of mourning. And so Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves today, whether we are happy, whether we are sad, whether we are down, whether we are cheerful, that we can truly see you as a God that is worthy of our worship. God, I pray that uh, 
even now in, in difficult times as uh, we are uh, hearing the news of uh, popular cultural icons and a- athletes that have just lost their lives. God, I, I pray for the family of uh, Kobe Bryant. And uh, as the news rolls out, uh, Father, there are so many people who have been uh, impacted by, by people, uh, God, whether in, uh, in, in church or whether outside, God, and there are people who are mourning this very moment. And so, God, I pray that even in the midst of this, that your will would be done, that whatever it is that you're doing with this family, I pray for his wife and his children. God, I pray that you would give us uh, what it means to, to still worship you in the midst of mourning. And God, I pray that even as we go into your word today, that we're able to see who you are uh, through our tears or even when we're happy. God, I pray that that would not color who you are to us today. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, we've been walking through this series um, uh, in, in John, and we've been looking at who God is to us and how John is such a unique uh, storyteller as he begins to kind of break down the gospel for us. And he's, there's some unique approaches that he takes, uh, very different from the other three gospel writers. And uh, as we look at uh, this particular text, this is a very familiar uh, text when we talk about the woman uh, at the well. But I'm really hoping, we've actually had an incredible sermon be preached. Kim preached uh, an incredible sermon on this, and I don't want to recapitulate all the things that she's already done. I would encourage you to go on our website and listen to that. But I also want to point out that uh, there's some things, there's some questions that we need to be able to ask about who God is based on how John reveals who Jesus is here. There are some assumptions that we probably make when we read this text. There are things that we lay and we superimpose onto the text, a lot of our own biases, a lot of our own uh, ideas of, of what's in and what's out, what's culturally acceptable and what's not, what's taboo. You guys are familiar with, with taboos, right? Cultural taboos that uh, no matter where you're from, no matter what family you've been raised in, there are certain things that are taboo. There are certain things that are acceptable. And, and if, you, if you follow along those acceptable lines, then you're, you're culturally in. If you don't follow those, those lines that are acceptable, you're culturally out. Now, there, this is the case uh, across uh, the country. So much of our behavior is rooted in taboos like this. So I, I found a list of a few different taboos uh, around, the con- around the world uh, that really can kind of connote whether or not you are socially in or whether you are socially out. In Russia, don't ever give an even number of flowers as a gift. If you give an even number, that's something that, that's actually reserved for those who, are, who have died. So if you were to bring somebody for a romantic occasion, I've read some stories where there are guys who went to go out with a woman and brought an even number of roses and the door was shut in their face. Because there's something socially off about that. And when people go, man, what, if you understood where we were and you understood who I am, what would make you think this was okay? And so you get cast out. In Thailand, <clears throat> excuse me, and even in Arab countries, you never point your shoe or your foot at another person. And those who have traveled, I see you nodding, right? You never do that because uh, the shoe or the foot is, is considered an unclean part of your body. So if you're like, maybe you got your hands full and you're like, oh, just right over there, you would never point at a person with your shoe. That is a, a social taboo, and you would actually be cast out from, the, from people who just have good sense if they see you do that. If you're a male, don't ever try to shake hands 
with an orthodox or, or covered Muslim woman. Because that actually is something that is considered very rude and very insensitive and just very disrespectful to some of their religious observances, right? It would be considered taboo to do something like that. If you're in Japan, you don't walk into a Japanese home with your shoes on. That's a taboo that would automatically say something about you and it might make them actually treat you a certain kind of way. Never eat while standing when you're in Indonesia. That's a taboo that when people see, they go, that says a lot about you, a lot of what you haven't learned, a lot of what you don't know, and people may choose to avoid you. Never wear red to a funeral in China or write a person's name in red in Korea. This was something that actually, I had to really look this up to find, to see stories where people were talking about. So it's interesting because there's some things that are associated with death or things that are actually very dark. And so you, you avoid those things if you're aware of it because it's actually a, a major taboo. And finally, in India and many Middle Eastern countries, you never eat with your left hand. You never eat with your left hand. Matter of fact, uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was in Iraq and, and in Kuwait, you would hear stories about people who had committed crimes. If they had been caught stealing, they would cut off your right hand. Because, see, the left hand was used for bathroom hygiene purposes. And so the idea is the left hand is extremely dirty. It's unclean. You would never want to touch a person if all they had was their left hand. So there is this massive taboo that, that's there, and it's actually very enforced as well. Now, what, what, what's the point in, in identifying some of these taboos? Well, in these cases, taboos are associated with behaviors and or thoughts. If there's a way that you think about a thing, if there's something that maybe you, a position that you hold, that could actually put you on the outs. There's a certain behavior that you display that can also put you on the outs. What you do and what you think will determine whether you are culturally in or culturally out. And we know that even here. When, when you notice somebody that's doing something that's not culturally acceptable, what do you really think? Honestly. You see somebody who maybe they, they're just a little bit uncouth. Maybe they don't understand personal space. Maybe they're a close talker. Somebody popped in all of y'all's heads and y'all wrong for that. Maybe, maybe there's somebody who doesn't quite get when, you know, sometimes people don't know when it's time to end the conversation. And so like you're trying to make leaving motions and they're just like, no, we're good. We're going to keep this conversation going. You're like, man, they don't really know how to really, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to them very much. Right? We, we, we get this because ultimately there's something in our mind that goes, what's wrong with that person? Don't they know better? And it isn't because all taboos are necessarily bad. There are many taboos that began because they were trying to protect against something that could have been dangerous or harmful. <clears throat> the problem is those dangers may no longer be present, but the taboos, they have very long staying power. And so, so when, we, when you think about how easy it is for us to see taboos in our own cultures, in our own world, and you understand what cultural and social taboos can mean for a person, the ways that they can be on the outs and feel left out. Think about the text that we're looking at. Because this is even more so. Beyond just cultural taboos, think about religious and ceremonial taboos. Think about what it means not only to be culturally in or culturally out, to be considered spiritually clean or spiritually dirty. This is the story that we find ourselves. This is where <clears throat> Jesus really turned some things upside down. This was the case 
in Middle Eastern times. These spiritual, spiritual taboos would take you far beyond just culturally being in or out. And so when we look at this, uh, I want us to be able to see a few things in this, in this text. It's a lot, so I can't cover every possible thing. I'm so glad that so much of what some of the heavy lifting has already be done, been done by Kim. I told Kim, if I feel like I'm struggling, I'm just going to have her come up and just re-preach what she already preached because it was, it was phenomenal. One of the things I want us to see is we titled this uh, uh, a, a Tale of Two Privileges, right? Because the person who gets to determine the taboos, the person who gets to determine who's in or who's out, they're the ones who actually have the privilege in that case, right? I mean, if I get to determine, right, the laws of hegemony, if I get to determine the laws of who gets to be uh, acceptable and who doesn't, then I'm the one that actually has the majority of the privilege, especially if I not only create the rules, but I enforce those rules. I'm the one that's in the privileged position. Quite simply, in this case, the golden rule is he or she who has the gold makes the rules. So think about this when you look at where we are with Jesus. The first few verses of chapter four, where we've come out of uh, Jesus having met with Nicodemus and, and many things that he starts talking about what it means for him to be uh, from heaven, a lot of the things that Jen preached last week. Then all of a sudden, this is roughly eight months into Jesus's ministry, and you see what's, where he is. He's already had this meeting, this choice, chance encounter with Nicodemus, this religious leader who came secretly, rather surreptitiously, hoping not to be uh, discovered by other folks. And then <clears throat> you see what happens in verse 1 of chapter 4, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Think about this for a minute. Already, we already know, Jesus is in this situation where he is al he's already not liked by many of the religious leaders. He's already on the outs with the Pharisees because he's already begun to violate some major religious Jewish taboos. He's already started to violate those things. He's already started to make claims that are incredibly taboo and just frankly uh, wrong, and they would say rebellious against what has already been taught. So, so in this case, Jesus is the one, right, who's actually dealing with the privileged ones. They're actually coming after him. He is in this position of, you know, I mean, obviously he's God, but he is also man, and he's finding himself subjected to these rules and these laws and these taboos that are there. So what do they hear? They hear a rumor that's not all the way true. And by the way, the reason why I love John so much is John is so in tune with being a good narrator. He has more parenthetical statements than anybody in the gospel. When you read through, you know how like sometimes you're telling the story and maybe sometimes people just want to keep giving you a bunch of extra details about the story while they're saying it. Okay, so we were going in a car, but it wasn't a blue car, it was a red car. They might tell you it was a blue car, but it wasn't, it was a red car. It's like, get on with the story. No, John is going to give you all of these details because he does not want you to get it twisted. So, so he starts to share this detail. He starts to share kind of where Jesus is. And he's like, these folks, they had a problem with Jesus. He's violating some things in their mind, but they don't even have all their information straight. But they're mad because they're hearing that, that folks are being, there are more people being baptized under his ministry than under theirs. And that, there's a whole other sermon to be preached just for that. When you look at ministry as a competition versus collaboration in the kingdom. 
That's its own separate, we'll be here three hours. But, but to see that that was something that had started to rise up in them and they, this jealousy, you realize when the kingdom is not about God's glory and it's about you, it will always be competition. Always. You always feel threatened when you see someone else doing something for God's glory because it's, especially if it looks like they're getting more shine than you. <clears throat> and so now you, you, you see where Jesus is. He's, he's, he, he acknowledges it. Now, he could easily defend himself. He could easily say, hey, y'all, I know y'all are hearing this, but actually, I'm not even the one doing the baptizing. He doesn't do that, but he's on the run. He's on the run because those who are in these privileged, powerful positions are coming after him. And so he's moving. He's leaving. Now, when you think about where he is, I heard somebody describe it this way. Uh, if you want to kind of get, uh, don't have a map in here, but if you want to get an idea of like where they are at the time, you, you imagine Jesus being, in order for them to get to Galilee, they had to go to Samaria. So they start out kind of in like southern Israel, right? So if you were, somebody described it this way, if you were to imagine like a meatball sub, I know it's a very non-kosher example, but if you were to use a meatball sub and, you, and Jesus starts at the bottom, You've got the middle meatball, that's Samaria, and then Galilee is the top meatball. So in order to, I know some of y'all are getting hungry. I know it's after lunch. When you start there, the fastest way to get to, to Galilee is to go through that middle meatball, to go through Samaria. So that's where he's going. Hey, they're coming after me. They have a problem with me. They, they don't like certain things. There's some things that might come my way. I'm, I'm leaving. We got to go. So in this particular case, Jesus, and this isn't the first time in his life where he's been in the underprivileged position and he's trying to escape. So on his way, he goes through a town, a city known as Samaria. Now we got to understand things about Samaria, right? If you were a, a properly observant Jewish person, a man of the Jewish faith, you typically would just avoid Samaria altogether. You wouldn't go through Samaria. You'd go around. It'd take longer but you would do it because you want to not violate those ceremonial cleanliness taboos. Now, why would that be a taboo? Because if you were, you have to understand there's a whole lot of history behind this, but it goes all the way back to when the, uh, when the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Israel separated into the northern and southern kingdoms, when the Assyrians came through and wiped out the northern kingdoms, uh, and, they, and they took over tons of the Jews that were living in those northern kingdoms, those northern kingdoms all of a sudden kind of subsumed these, the Jews that stayed alive, that they kept as slaves, and they allowed them to mix with these Assyrian uh, communities. Which meant, not only did they commingle, did they co-marry, intermarry, but they also started mixing up their gods together. So you had people who had been following the law to some degree, but then they were mixing, and some people would call it syncretizing some of these other beliefs together. Y'all, this is something that we do in, as Christians all the time, by the way. It's, it's so dangerous to be around, sometimes you can be in a culture and you're really trying to be understanding and understanding everything else and you can start to adopt other things in in addition to what God has already said. And the moment you start adding additional things into what God's already said, you have now said something God never said. And so these Samaritans had a little bit of truth and then a little bit of everything else mixed in together. Maybe earnestly, honestly, and very sincerely. This is something we've said many, many times. Sincerity is never the litmus test for truth. How sincere you were has nothing to do with whether you were right because you can be sincerely wrong. 
Now, you, we can have great intentions, and that matters to a degree. But, but here, you've got a group in Samaria for centuries who have held on now to a little bit. By the way, there's a lot of things they believe. They actually believe that the, the, the scriptures as they knew them began and ended with the Torah, with the Pentateuch, with the first five books of what we know to be the Old Testament. That was it. Everything else they just cast out. So to them, the last prophet there was was Moses. That was the last high prophet to them. So when you start bringing up other things, they're like, what about David? And what about Ezekiel? And what about Isaiah? They didn't listen to those. They didn't believe those things. They only thought that these were the only true uh, scriptures. So you've got a major, here's why, why this matters. Because there's a major theological disagreement amongst the quote-unquote true Jews, because that's how they viewed themselves, right? Because they were trusting in their DNA. They trusted Ancestry.com to prove that they were indeed Jewish. Instead of what the actual spiritual DNA of their heart was, it was, well, 23andMe says I'm with God, so I got it. And so now you've got this layout here, right? Because the Samaritans were these, you know, the Jews would look at them as like mixed, quote unquote, mixed breeds or half breeds. And they have, you know, they, they had the nerve to, to allow those poisonous bloodlines to come in with them. And they don't still have all of the truth either. So they were treated really poorly. As a matter of fact, if you were a Samaritan and you were raised in that, you knew the story of what happened to your temple. See, here's the other thing. For Samaritans, they actually believed that the temple was not in Jerusalem. They believed that the temple should have never been at Mount Sinai back in the day, or that God's presence should have never been there. They believed the temple should be on Mount Gerzon. They had a completely different mountain where they believed the presence of God was, and they believed that's where they were supposed to worship. And further, these folks who were truly Jewish were like, y'all not one of us, you're not allowed to worship here. And then on top of that, 150 years prior to this story, the king of the, the, the actual Jewish king at the time went in and destroyed the temple that the Samaritans had to worship in as well. So they have now have, they have no place to go worship. They're not accepted by the Jews. They are incredibly underprivileged and they're looked at as ceremonially, ceremonially filthy and dirty because they don't have the right truth. You know, you realize that sometimes, many times, even if you think your doctrine is right, even if you think that you've got the true statement and you've got the best theology and you've got the best systematized way of looking at God, you can completely miss God and have nothing to do with the love of God for other image bearers. That's actually where they were. So you've got folks that, on, on, I mean, ostensibly do have the truth but they in no way live that out. And you've got these other folks that are suffering. So given all that background, if you were a, an observant Jewish man and someone who people are looking at as a rabbi, you would never walk through a Samaritan town. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan is what it is. That's what, this, the reason why Jesus uses the story of a Samaritan to kind of point out the lack of love and the lack of real kingdom-mindedness that people had, that the Jews had. So all that background, Jesus realizes, okay, we're going to get away. We're having to deal with our situation of not being privileged in this case. We're going to escape, and we're going to go up to uh, Galilee, his hometown, which John parenthetically brings up later. And then we're going to, but, on, but the way we're going to get there, we're not going to take shortcuts. We're not going to go, uh, or we're not going to take the long way around, even though we probably should, uh, according to the taboos of the day. 
we're going to just go st- make a straight line, go right through Samaria. So he's on his way through Samaria. He travels through. He comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A lot to be said about this well. We don't really have a ton of time to go into it. You don't really see Jacob's well specifically identified in the Old Testament, but we know through a lot of other uh, ar- ar- archaeological evidence and extra biblical writings that people have brought up, people have always referred to this well as the well where a lot of the land that had been seeded and had been left all the way through the times of Abraham, this is the, some people talk about the fact that maybe Joseph's bones were indeed brought there that this uh, likely may have been the same well where Isaac met his wife. This may be the same well. Uh, matter of fact, uh, several, several archaeologists point out that wells were kind of like the JewishMingle.com of the time. That's where you would go to try to meet somebody. You go to the well. It's a water source. So every, societies would always orient themselves around where a water source was. They had to survive. So, so this was a place where, you know, if you wanted to be able to come, spit game, in other words, like find ways to, to empower yourself enough to be able to talk to someone of the opposite sex. You want to be able to go and talk to somebody and be able to kind of say something, talk and get the number, find out whatever, get their, I don't know, carrier pigeon, I don't know how they would communicate. And so, and so they would get there and they would talk and people would meet at the well. That was, the, that was just normal. But also that was a place where people would just recline and they would just relax and it was just a hangout spot. So Jesus goes to this well, this very well-known well at the time, and he goes to this well, and he's tired, reclines, and he sees a woman there. And this woman is there at noon. John includes that detail. Why does he include it? Well, this is where I hope, and this is where the things that Kim preached before so helpful, because for us, we need, and I think it's so important we're reading texts, We need to disabuse ourselves of some of the really faulty ways that we've been taught to read some of these stories. Specifically, when we come to stories about women like this. If I have to see another list of shady ladies in the Bible, naughty women in Scripture, because here's the thing, there are times where in very misogynist ways, we almost have this idea that the ladies are the really sultry kind of ones that are trying to ruin everything. They're always bad. There's just a natural expectation. So here's, why, here's what I mean. When, when something happens, right, if anything happens wrong, if, some, if, if specifically in cases of assault, if somebody's in a situation where something happens to them, and your first thing is, what was she doing there? What, what was she wearing? Well, why would she be there? If she, didn't she know what would happen if she went? Now, that might be, we might be going, man, you know, we shouldn't do that. Maybe we're starting to get to a place where we realize that's actually not healthy. But we still do that in the text all the time. Because you look at her story, and here's what we do. We realize that noon is a time where most women would not have been there. And depending on your understanding of this, it, it, it colors that, right? Because some people assume she's out here because she just want to get chose. I'm intentionally messing up that grammar on purpose, but some of y'all understand why. She's sitting here, people think, well, she just, she just wants somebody to be able to identify her. She wants somebody to be able to see her. She, she wants to be seen. She, she's just trying to get a man. So they'll immediately assume she's up to no good. Now, 
There's no question that it was very uncommon for, first of all, it was very uncommon for anyone, for women to go there and talk to any man there because it also was a massive taboo for men to talk to women, period, there. Especially if you're some kind of religious leader. Matter of fact, I found old rabbinical, some of the rabbis of the day, some of the writings that they had would say that for a man to talk to a woman, a strange woman, would be to invite Gehenna, that is hell, on themselves. So again, remember we talked about how people like these taboos, they're like outlive their usefulness, but we still keep having those things there. This was major, this was hugely damaging, right? But okay, this woman is there at noon. Most women would go early in the morning when it was cool, cool of the day, or they would go later at night. They, really, they normally wouldn't go right in like the biggest, most popular time because most people also b- believe that uh, the wells could also work almost like a marketplace because it was like the common place that people would gather. We don't know for sure. But, but here's the thing. The fact that John brings it up that she was at noon does make us wonder, okay, well, why was she there? And all I'm saying is we, we don't know for sure. What I'm saying is don't allow some really faulty biases to color why you think she was there. Because she could have been there just because, hey, this was a day where I would have gotten there early, but I couldn't, and I'm here now. So she's here. And we see that she's there. We see that she's taught, she sees Jesus there. Most women, when they saw a man at the well, you know what they would do? They would turn around and leave. Well, and not even because they were, this is why I hate the way we think about this, because they were like, do you think they left because they were like, I just can't help it. It's just in me to be sultry. And I just, I, just, I just want so badly to be able to do something really naughty. And I can't, like we act like that these animals that just can't control whatever, like they're responsible for stuff. But really they just knew like, I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to deal with the shame that's going to come if I'm even seen talking to this, to this man. So they just, they just leave. That's normally what would have happened. And it's more just to avoid the cultural issues that could come. But she doesn't. So this woman of Samaria came to draw water. She sees him there. She keeps coming to go draw water. And Jesus says, give me a drink. Because the disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, this is also such an interesting case because uh, I was finding that <clears throat> this you got to really try to put yourself in the shoes of this woman, which is really hard to really think through what is she thinking when Jesus, this man, we don't know what she's heard about him yet. Maybe she's heard that he's done some things. Keep in mind, just a few months ago, he just turned water into wine. So we don't know what she knows, but she sees a man here and the man talks to her, which never should happen. Not only do men not talk to women, But men for sure don't talk to Samaritan women. We already talked about what it is to be from Samaria. But also, it's, you know, if you were a a Jewish woman, you were unclean for seven days. If you were a Samaritan woman, you were just unclean for all your days. So so this woman already, that's why you're going to see what she says to him. This woman is there. You would have thought, there's a man, she may have known he's a Jewish man. I got to get out of here but she doesn't. And he talks to her and he says, give me a drink. Now, some scholars say that this may have been, who knows what went through her mind. She could have thought that maybe he was making a pass at her because that was the kind of place where people would make passes. Matter of fact, the only other stories we have about wells are men meeting women and marrying them at the well. 
So, so it could easily, it, you know, this is how Moses met his wife. So, so it was common. People kind of expected, okay, if I got there, if, I meet, if I'm single and they're single, then I might meet somebody there. So we don't know. We don't know for sure, but it's possible she could have been like, I need to make sure I, what's happening here. Because this man who shouldn't even be talking to me is asking me to give him water. And so she, you understand why she says what she says. She says, how is it, you a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. What, what is she identifying now? She's pointing out something really clear. She's saying, you do realize that like, you are on the upper level of this privilege scale, which means you should never really be talking to me. I, I know my place. I know where I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be conversed with in this way. I know what, I, what I've already, I know where I live. I know what society tells me about me. I know what you must know about me. How is it possible that you're even talking to me? And this is, he answers, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now this statement had to be really wild for her because one thing we know Phrases like this, especially in Middle Eastern literature, when they would say things like living water, that was an idiom, usually for some type of like river, like moving water that's there. But he's there at a place where there's just stagnant water, maybe fresh, you know, nice to taste, but water that's not moving. It's well water. So, so you can't miss this, that, that he's actually giving her a deeper picture here. He's, he's pointing out something. He's saying, you're at a, a well where there's really, there's, there's no water moving, but if you knew who you were talking to, you would know, hey, the same way that what you could expect from a river that's flowing, you can expect from me here at a place where there's nothing but still water. So this woman has got to be perplexed. Now, y'all, here's the thing that really gets me. As we get ready to go deeper, you know what's so cool about this? She just keeps talking to Jesus. This is why this is so incredible to me. This is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anybody in Scripture. If you don't get how big of a deal this is, you have to understand that Jesus comes. He comes. I say this. We say this all the time. Jesus comes to save broken souls, but he also comes to break broken systems. You see, the system was you don't talk to women, specifically Samaritan women. Jesus says, not only am I going to talk to her, that's going to be the longest convo y'all ever get from me. That's odd. And then he spends this time with her. But what do they talk about, too? This is when it gets deeper. The fact that this woman, she gets this conversation from Jesus, and he, go, he takes it spiritual, right? He doesn't waste any time. Give me a drink. He likely knew how she would respond. And then she goes, wait, wait, what are you talking about? How are you talking to me like this? How is it even possible? She's curious. She's questioning. She's inquisitive. She said, sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So here's something she's demonstrating. What we know about this woman, before you start to assume anything else about her, and I'm asking, please just remove whatever you think you know about this woman for a minute. Here's what we do know. She knew some scripture. She, she studied something. She knew something because she's responding, getting into a theological discussion with a man. 
And she just says, look, based on what I know to be true, how are you able to do this? Like, I'm acknowledging, because they still looked at Jacob as their father too. He, he planted this well. Are you saying that he's greater than, are you saying that you're greater than, than him? And, and Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Jesus immediately walks in and starts to identify. You know, we, we, we've talked about this at different times at this church over the years, that there's always the presenting need that we all have, and there's always a deeper spiritual need that we all have. And one of the dangerous things that can happen, even in churches, to be a church, we've said this over and over again, to be a church that just identifies felt needs, and that's it. There are a lot of churches that pride themselves on, you know, we care for, and they do, and they do an incredible job, but it never gets beyond that to some of the deep spiritual needs. That's a really dangerous environment to be in. See, Jesus could have been that. If Jesus was just about meeting physical needs, he would have been like, he really could have been like, you know what, I'm going to put a geyser in your backyard, wherever your backyard is, it's there. He could easily just say, I'm going to make sure that you have running water all the time. But he goes beyond that. He goes, I see this one need that you have, but I'm realizing a deeper spiritual need. And so he, he brings that up. He, he shares this. probably hard for her to really, to any, for anybody to understand. And, and uh, she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So she kind of gets it, but she kind of doesn't, right? She's like, okay, well, hey, I'm, I'm trying to track with you. If you've got this kind of water you're talking about, let me know. I want to be able to not have to come here either. And then he goes deeper because he's starting to see some other deeper issues that are happening for her. So he says, go call your husband and then come back here. She said, I don't have a husband. And he said, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. This had to be crazy to hear, by the way, just like just thinking how the, the banter goes back and forth. You've correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, that, poor, that part right there is one that, depending on how you're reading this text, there's already an image you have of this woman. There's already an image you have of this woman when you see this. Because you're like, oh, well, uh, okay, it says here that clearly she's been married five times. She's had five different husbands. And now the man she's with is not her husband. Ooh. But here's the question. Why do we assume that a woman in this story has any relational agency for herself? In other words, why do you, like today, if that were the case, you could make some other assumptions, right? You know why? Because today, women, like men, can actually ask for divorce. And that's actually rather recent here in America. For the longest time, women couldn't get a divorce unless the man granted them, right? But back, that was always the case back then. So, so, so you have to just think logically for a minute. If there's a woman that's been married five times, she's had five husbands, where we go is... Ooh, women automatically means some kind of, you know, sexual licentiousness somewhere. So she's got five husbands. She's just wilding out. She's just crazy. She's just jumping from man to man. That's where people's minds go, sadly. It's anachronistic, and it's just uh, completely inaccurate. 
You see, likely what's happening here is you've got a woman who has been married five times. In order for her to be married five times, that means at least four of the men had to either demand a divorce from her or die. And in either situation, she would be completely ostracized for those things. That may not even be her fault. Do you get this? Like this isn't just uh, this situation. It's so easy to go. Usually this story goes, Jesus meets this woman that's just out there. He meets a woman that's out in these streets and he's trying to make her be holy again. And that's it. Now, we don't know the full story. We don't know that. But there's assumptions that we already put on her, which I think starts coloring how we automatically assume these same things sexually about women anyway, whenever they're in a situation. So you look at how much this, that Jesus continues to talk to her. And he says, you've been married, you've, you've had five, wives, you've, five husbands. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Now, there could be any number of reasons why that is the case. Look, if she had five husbands and they all died, okay. Then people are wondering, is she like some kind of like, is this the first serial killer in the Bible? Like, we don't, well, who, that, can you imagine how weird that would be though? If you're in a small little Samaritan town, that's the woman who, like, her last five husbands died. There's something wrong with her. She's like the black widow of the town. We don't go near her. Or uh, it could be this. We also know that usually, we've talked about this before too. If you were going to marry a woman, you would pay a dowry, right? Well, if you got to a point where you're like, I'm on hard times. I'm not really feeling her anymore. I'm going to find some kind of ridiculous reason to divorce her because I get my dowry back. So in many ways, women, marriage a lot of times was just another way to be trafficked. You get purchased, man doesn't like you anymore, I got the receipt, I want my refund. And after that happens over and over again, guess what happens? That woman already has like a very low social cue rating. She's already ostracized. So when Jesus sees this woman, I'm not sure we should be looking at it and going, Jesus sees this sexually profligate woman, this woman that is so broken, that's so messed up, all of her bad individual decisions. It could be Jesus is saying, I see you and I see the system that has broken you and I'm still present because I love you. It's easy for us to jump the other way because we naturally, we naturally flow into this whole individual decision. You're the bad one. You've done all these things. Do better, do better, do better. But you're looking at this, I think we, we sometimes look at this so wrong because now, now could, it doesn't mean, it's not to take away from the fact that there could have been things that she did that wasn't like anybody, did things that weren't right, could have been things in her heart, may not even been things that were sexual, could have been any number of issues that are there. Jesus isn't saying I'm overlooking that. He's just saying, I see you for the entire whole person that you are. And I see you in a way that this society refuses to see you. I see you in a way that this society has systematically chosen to mute your voice, chosen to overlook you, chosen not to care for you, chosen not to love you. The fact that Jesus is even there talking to her is saying in so many ways, I love you because I'm staying present with you here. Every other man would have left you right now. And so this woman is, he, when he tells her this, he says, you've been married five times and the man you're with is not your husband. Could be she's with a guy. Here's the thing. It could be that at this point, she's not marriable. It could be any number of reasons why. It could be an illicit relationship. We just, we just don't know. So, so again, to automatically assume that Jesus is doing this just to shame her in her sin, 
actually missing the point. I get it. We, our, we have a bloodlust that we kind of love to be able to levy that on people, especially women. But, but that's not, that may not necessarily be what's happening here. So he sees this, he talks to this woman and he tells her this. And, and she responds, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Now this, this is super great because for her, some, listen, I've heard people use this. And this is where I was talking to Kim about this earlier. There, there are people who use this as an excuse to shame people and go, Jesus did it. In other, in other words, it's, it's our job, it's my duty to, to take your sin and rub it, rub your nose in it so that you just remember where your real place is. And a good godly response is, wow, you just showed my sin and rubbed my nose in it. You must be a prophet. I've actually seen, quote unquote, self-appointed prophets function this way. And this would be a text that they would use to kind of back that up. But the question is, really, what is Jesus really saying here? What is she saying? When, when this woman looks and, and, and she's overwhelmed, she says, you, I can tell that you're a prophet. What if she's saying this? I can tell you're a prophet because you fully see things in me that the systems that exist right now have systematically erased about me. There's no way you would know these things about me unless you had some deeper insight to understand. There's no way you would understand just how crushed I've been. If she's a woman who has had these really, really messed up marriages because as was often the case, the ways in which men would just find a way to refund their wives, if this is her story, we don't know, but if it is, can you imagine, can you imagine what this had to be for her? Can you imagine how, what a breath of fresh air this would have been? Every other day she walks around and people are turning their nose up at her. Every, every place she walks, people are whispering behind her back. Every, everywhere she goes, people are just saying, well, you know what happened to husband number four or number three or number two? Either he left her or he's dead. She's constantly reminded. How about this? If you were a woman back then, you realize you didn't marry for love. Nobody, hardly anybody did. You didn't marry for romance. Hardly anybody did. You married because maybe some parents put some things together or some, got, some really, really older man was like, I got the loot. You're coming with me. And you just got to hope that he's nice. And you just got to hope that he's there for you. You got to hope that he's good. You got to hope that he's caring. You got to hope that he's empathetic because if he's not, you better not do anything wrong. Imagine you're that woman and you've gone through that five times. And the only thing people have to say to you is, but you've been married five times. Imagine the pain. Imagine the loneliness. And then somebody comes up to you out of the blue and says, I see you. The pain you had in marriage number one, I see you. The pain you had in marriage number two, I see you. So on and so forth. She's like, somebody is seeing a part of me, my wholeness. They're seeing every part of my story in a way that nobody else has. This must be a prophet. And in so doing, she is overwhelmed. She says, I see that you're a prophet. So look at where her mind goes, which I think is so great. She's excited because you, you realize she's not shamed in this, in this moment here. She's not just in this place of like, okay, you got me. I'm a blah, 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 blah. Insert whatever word you want. I'm this kind of person. Okay. She's overwhelmed for some other reason. And then the way that you know that her heart is in the right place is because immediately, you know what she wants to talk about? She doesn't want to talk about any further about what happened. And let me tell you what happened. She's going, I want to talk deeper theology with you now. 
You've shown me. See, there's something about when you actually are coming into relationship with the living God that he does indeed expose every part of your heart, good, bad, otherwise. And when that happens, when you, you, you realize you've ever been in a relationship with someone where friends, whatever, and they are able to, to, to get to a place where the relationship is intimate enough where you can start to share all of who you are. It's rare, but when it happens and you're like, oh my God, I can share the deep, all the things, the deep, dark stuff, really good stuff, whatever. I can start to share this in a way that makes me realize this is, this is almost spiritual. This is, this is beyond anything that I've, that I've ever had. Well, with God, he gets to a place where he begins to expose your heart and shows you, I know your heart. And that actually should not lead us to hiding. It shouldn't lead us to, to running away. It shouldn't lead us to finding a way to excuse whatever is there that's dark. It actually should lead us to worship. And it led her to, it led her to go, I want, a, I want a deeper understanding now of some theological things. So she starts going into the theological issues that Samaritans have with the quote-unquote true Jews. And that's when she says that. As soon as he points out her life story, she says, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So immediately she's, here's the thing. She's not just wanting to just have like a tit-for-tat theological argument. She legitimately, she legitimately has been pondering deep theological things. Here's why I think that so often we move off of this so fast. Because throughout the history of the church, not every church, I get it, there's all kinds of exceptions, but by and large, women have not really been expected to study or know theology. They haven't been expected. Doesn't mean that there aren't women that know, because there's tons of them. But they've not been expected by and large. They've ex- the people who are expected to have, right, this, this, the, the highest level of proficiency in the word are the men. That's what's expected. And so when you've got this woman who clearly has been, she's been doing her homework, she's been studying, she's, she knows something somehow, and she knows some deep theological conversation points. And all of a sudden she's like, okay, before you go, I, I want to talk about some deep theology here. I'll never forget, there's a really popular conference uh, that would happen up in Chicago, and I won't even name it, some of y'all might know when I say it, but, but there was a really popular conference that, uh, uh, it's interesting, I remember the church that I was a part of was kind of associated with it, and they were, families or folks would come, and they would want a place to stay. So they would, some churches would say, hey, we're going to put up host families, we'll be a host family, and you can stay at our house. And so uh, the church I was at, we had a bus, and we'd help uh, uh, bus people over, and one guy had his wife with him. And that was, you wouldn't see that normally. You normally would just see a bunch of men showing up, doing their thing. And, and somebody said, hey, so you're here with your husband. That's, that's great. And she said, yeah, I needed to come. They're like, why? She's like, because I really want to be able to study real theology. But every time I want to study theology, every woman's Bible study is like overly domesticated. And if I have to hear another analogy, like let the word of God simmer like a crock pot in your soul, I'm going to stab myself with a blunt object. And, and, and see, we laugh, but here's the thing. For a lot of people, that's the only expectation of women we've ever had. And we'll even say, no, that's not true, but how we function is here. The longest, even for husbands, if you think this way, the longest conversations you have with your wives about something theological probably has something to do with her role, what she ought to be doing in the home. But when it's time to talk about deep theology, we think that's relegated for those with the Y chromosome. 
And so now you're seeing, when I tell you Jesus is actually driving a spoke in the wheel of some of these taboos, this is a taboo. It's not just him talking to a woman or him talking to a Samaritan woman, but he's talking deep theology with a woman. Why? Because God invites men and women to the table of theology, period which means we've got to be intentional about how we actually plan things out. We've got to be intentional about the conversations that we have. It, it can't just be, okay, it's nothing wrong with men doing stuff, women doing stuff. I'm not saying anything about that. Affinity's great. Here's the question. Are we just leaving, are we leaving certain things for the big boy table? Because, y'all, that actually is, Jesus is actually showing us that's not what it is. In many ways, he's turning that upside down. And so this woman is like, hey, all right, beyond all that, you know, yes, Jesus went to, you could say he went to something that's more domesticated, hey, your relationship or whatever. And then she's like, that's great. I want to talk some theology now. And then so there's a boldness here in this woman that we actually should be applauding in some ways. It's, so I, again, putting this like shady lady in the Bible, you missed the point. This woman is showing some real boldness. It's like, I want to understand. And so... She begins to walk through this issue. Hey, we know that this is, you know, we were taught that this is where worship's supposed to happen. We were always taught that we should worship on this mountain, but Jews say this. Help me, I want to understand who's right. And, which is a, saying a lot. She could, for a lot of us, for a lot of us, I would say even maybe most of us, if you already believe a thing, then you just want to keep looking for confirming information for what you already believe. Most of us are not eager to go look for disconfirming information about something. We're biased. Whether it's about what you believe, or maybe it's somebody that you love. Maybe there's a situation with a family member or a friend. You got a friend and they're really, really nice to you, but somebody else is saying, hey, some things might have happened over here. You don't want to go look for disconfirming information about that. You just want to keep finding the people that are going to keep saying good things about them, because that's who we are. So this woman is actually getting beyond her own bias to say, okay, I've been taught this my whole life. But I'm seeing that you're a prophet, so give me the truth then. And if the truth is something that's opposite of what I've been taught, I'm willing to leave it by the wayside. That's what a humble heart looks like. You know what's interesting about this? What's interesting about this is this woman goes and talks to Jesus in public. She, she talks to Jesus in lieu of certain shame that will come her way by talking to this man and Jesus getting shame as well. Why does John put this right after the story of Nicodemus, the man who snuck under the cover of darkness in nighttime. It's like, I, I don't, I, he's a leader. See, if you don't see John trying to really show you that there's some taboos that need to be upended, hey, you got this really, really wise, really well-known Jewish leader, Nicodemus, who also has some theological questions, but he only wants to do it really quietly and secretly because he doesn't really want all that sauce in the, in the daytime. And then this woman is there and is like, it's noon. Probably the most eyes of the day are right here. But I want some theology. I want to know who you are. I'm not going anywhere. John is trying to show us something. And then you look at uh, what happens next. She goes here and she wants to dig into this theological issue. She wants to understand what's true. She wants to understand, have I been taught wrong? She wants to know this. And that's a great, wonderful, uh, uh, it's a praiseworthy heart posture. But look how Jesus responds. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. 
We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now look, this, this is such a big deal because ultimately what he's showing her is this. He's not, it, it, it can be easily assumed. We can easily assume, okay, Jesus is saying this theology stuff doesn't matter because he skips right over it. But he's not necessarily. Theology still matters. And right still matters. I saw something um, recently, a really good, I, I saved it. It's a cool picture of somebody coming to, uh, I think it was the number, the number, make sure I got it right, number 61, the number 19. One was on the top, one was on the bottom. And two people were coming at it from two different directions. And one person walks up and says, 16. And another person walks up and goes, 61 or whatever number I said. <laughs> they look and they see the opposite. And the caption at first was, just because you see it one way and the other person sees it the other way doesn't mean either of you are right or wrong, right? And then there, and that gets crossed out and at the bottom, no, actually that's still false. Here's why that's false. Because the person who wrote it intended one number. A lot of times we like to avoid, we try to go to a, to a post-fact, post-truth culture and a post-truth society so I get to interpret what I see to be true for me. Jesus doesn't let that happen either. He's looking at her and she's like, okay, this is how I've always understood it. And he's going, so here's how you know that he doesn't let you off the hook. He, he's not uh, uh, saying that theology doesn't matter. And he's not saying that right doesn't matter. And trust me, I know why we go there. Don't get me wrong. There are people who love to use facts and they weaponize facts and they try to harm you with the facts and they try to harm you with the truth. And so our overcorrection goes to, well, you know what? What is truth anyway? What are facts anyway? I would rather trust how I feel about the fact whether than the veracity of the fact itself. That's not, when you worship God in spirit and in truth, the truth piece still matters. It's not enough to just go, well, I'm spiritual because I feel a certain way and I feel so close to God, even if I'm in something that's not true. So God corrects that. Jesus corrects that. He goes, listen, yeah, uh, yes, there's no question that these Jewish folks have created a culture and a system in, in which you guys are definitely living uh, completely underprivileged. All these things are horrible, but I, and I get it. It's because of this theological position. By the way, they are right. Whoa. See, usually what, the way we determine, this is what's sad, the way we like to determine right or wrong is who was the mean one in the, in the conversation. Who had the worst heart's intent? See, and there are multiple rights and wrongs in this, right? The facts can be right and your heart can be wrong. And sometimes your heart can be right, like hers, but your facts are wrong. So Jesus, he, he points it out. He, he definitely says, listen, uh, but he makes it, here's the thing. He never put, he doesn't elevate the theology to the position where you almost make it an idol. He doesn't exalt the theology to a position that says the theology is the thing that matters more than anything else. He doesn't do that. Some of us come from traditions where we do do that. Some of us come from traditions where it's like, well, as long as I've got the theology right, as long as I've got the biblical truths right, then however else I am or how I feel or what I do, that part really doesn't matter as much because at least I'm right. Forget about theology. Some of us are just love being right with the facts in general. You know, there's a real popular phrase that will say, well, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, yes and no. For a person who follows Jesus, the Jesus I see cares about the facts and cares about the feelings. 
So when he looks at her, he sees this. And he, and he hears what she's saying. She wants to engage, and she wants to truly understand, okay, well, which side of the fence should I be on so that I can be right? I want to understand this. And this is where he goes. He says, listen, yeah, uh, trust me. The hour's going to come where this theological position won't even matter. It, it won't be about which mountain, because here's the thing. When you understand what worship was to, to an observant Jewish person, worship was not just what you believed in your heart. It was where you worshiped. It was how you worshiped. It was what you said when you worshiped. It was what you brought when you worshiped. There were all these additional things that would actually justify you to be a worshiper, to be one that was in the crew, the one that was actually included. And so he's looking at her and he's saying, this is going to come a time where it will not matter where you are. It will not matter where you go to church, what uh, temple you go to. It won't matter which mountain you're on. It won't matter whether or not you have the right ceremonial cleanliness issues over here. It won't even matter. But, so he, he gets to that point. But he, then he, he says, so I want you to know that uh, a theological issue, that issue won't even matter eventually. However, you Samaritans do worship what you don't know. Y'all, this is, this is what real love looks like too. Be very careful about thinking that in order to be loving, I have to be not a truth teller. It's not loving. You, can't lo you should never get to a position where you love someone out of the truth. When you get to that place, you're creating something that's not the gospel either. And you're giving them something that's not Jesus either. I, I have to say, Usually, I mean, we talk a lot about, I hope when people get this, we talk a lot about what it means to empathize and care for people. So we're not saying that that is in any way not necessary. All we're saying is that we don't get to a place where we subtract the truth in order to love people. We can't. And Jesus didn't. So he looks at her and she's wanting to know and she's showing his earnest heart and he's like, don't worry, eventually that part won't matter. But by the way, you are wrong about this. The Samaritans worship what they don't know. And we worship, we the Jews, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So <clears throat> he's kind of showing you something here. He's saying, ultimately, the Jews in this case are right where the actual temple is. The Jews in this case are right about what other scriptures and what other prophets exist. They're right on this point. And, and, and it's so uh, he also says that, that uh, salvation, right, comes from the Jews. But here, what is he saying here though? Jesus is showing you something really unique. He's showing her something really unique. He's saying, yes, the powers that be, the ones that are the privileged ones in this conversation, the ones who have a little bit more political capital than you do right now, the ones who have the ability to set the rules and maybe even crush you so that you guys don't have access to X, Y, and Z, they happen to be the ones that are right about the theological issue. And salvation really does come from them, and yes, yes, an hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know what he's really showing her? He's, because you already know, Jesus is not, if you don't understand, Jesus isn't like, he's not caping for, he's not like backing the Jews and going, hey, Jew till I die, Jews forever, their position, <clears throat> that's my position, I'm good. He's basically saying, the theology here, this part is right, but here's what should happen. Salvation comes from the Jews. It means this, what privilege says is that while this privilege comes from me, 
It does not exist uh, for me. In other words, just because uh, salvation comes from them, had they been doing what they should have been doing, this wouldn't even be an issue. Had they been actually practicing both truth and love, which is true worship, had they been practicing worshiping in spirit and in truth, this would never be an issue of dividing and treating folks like other and ostracizing because of a theological kerfluffle. It's a fun word to say. We don't say it enough. So when you, when you consider this, you're like, wow. So, so Jesus is basically showing her, yep, this is still a theological position that you may be wrong on, however, and yes, salvation should have come from here, but I can show you clearly that neither side seems to get it. Because one side might think they're better at worshiping, uh, but they may not have the truth. And another side might think they at least have the truth, but they not, may not be worshiping the way he's saying. Both of y'all got it wrong, but don't worry because the time is coming where that theological issue is going to be put to rest and you're going to be taught and shown how to worship in spirit and truth. Y'all, I, I can't stress this enough. We have to care about both. We have to care about both. What's the heart of God? What is God's spirit saying? And how does that, and, and you know what? They're not bifurcated. They're not things that should ever be separated, right? The spirit of God is what illuminates the truth. So they have to be married. So it's always hard when you're like, well, you know, I'm gonna say this, this might be really controversial. You can't be quote unquote spirit filled if you don't have truth. I don't care what you display or what you feel or what you do. If you don't have truth, that's not how it works. They go together. They're married. And so he sees this and she hears this and she, she, she takes in these words and she says to him, okay, well, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. See, she's, she, she's, giving, she's laying out even more. Okay, we talked about the temple thing and you just gave me a good answer and I'm, I'm, I'm chewing on that, but I got something else. I, we keep being told this Messiah is coming. She's, I mean, earnestly yearning to learn about when this Messiah is coming. She wants to know when this Messiah is coming. She says, I hear the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So it's like, all right, some of this stuff is confusing. You're saying something. I think you're a prophet, but, but I don't know. It's really hard to know all this stuff. Whenever the real Messiah comes, then he'll explain everything. And he's like, I got something to tell you. He's present. He's here. He's me. And can you imagine at that moment now, she has to go, y'all, at, on some level, when she finally sees that this is likely the Messiah, when you finally see that you're in relationship with the Messiah, all the things you thought you knew, they start to fall apart. All the things you were trusting in, you start to question. All the things that you thought you were certain on, the things that you trusted in. You might even have great examples of hard times you went through and you held on to some things in order to make it. That's just God's grace. They still could have been wrong. And so now this woman is finally, everything that I have been taught or I thought, all of that is like up for grabs. It's all something that could actually be eroded away because this person here is the, if he's the Messiah, then everything comes. This is what happens. So much of our world, so much of the way that we live gets, gets trampled. It, it gets crumbled. It gets completely destroyed if it's not true. See, what Jesus does is he comes in and everything that doesn't look like him, he pushes aside. Everything that doesn't love the way he loves, he pushes aside. Including even things that might be, 
things that might be detrimental, things that might be sinful, things that might be hurtful, things that might cause God to grieve, he also pushes that away too. And you know what? For everyone in this room, that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Whether it's what you think or what you do, when that stuff starts to get challenged, it's not comfortable. We always say, like, I, I really, you know, I want a word from God and I want to hear from God. And what if God says, hey, that thing you've been trusting all the time, I'm pulling it out from you. Oh, no, 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 I don't want a word from God no more. Let me get, is Baal around? <laughs> so this woman, and Jesus says, I'm, the one, I'm her, I'm him. The, the one that's speaking to you, I am he. Now, real quick, when you look at how everything ends, it's so, the falling action in this is really funny to me. Because you know who still really doesn't have a clue? The disciples. They all getting food. You just imagine them coming back with like, I don't know, a bunch of Chick-fil-A because that's the Jesus restaurant. So they come back with like some Chick-fil-A and they're carrying everything and then bomb waffle fries and they're like walking around and, and they're like food in their mouth and blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is there and they see him talking to a woman. What? What is this dude doing? They still don't get him fully. They saw him do the wine water thing and but they don't quite get it. So they show up with all of the, all the, all these, these, this food that they went out to get, and, and he's there talking, and it's interesting what, John's, what John says. He says, when the disciples arrived, they were amazed that he was talking with the woman, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Why does John have to remind us of that? Because that would be the normal thing that men would say, especially if they have your back. They're like, hey, yo, you probably shouldn't be talking to her. Now, I feel like I, I didn't intend to say this, but I feel like I have to say this. Men, this does not mean that just because you don't have men to have your back, you have an excuse to go do some things illicit, right? Sometimes we get in this place where it's like, I, I, I won't say no names, a really popular person gets caught doing some really, really messed up things, and they're like, if only I had some accountability, if only I had some people around, you're not an orangutan. The difference between a human and an animal is that you can control to some degree these, these intense emotions or feelings or what have you. You're not just driven by that. So, so when people are like, you know, because I'm going to tell you something. You know, who does, you know who, who does not get to use that as an excuse? Women. I just didn't have any accountability to keep. We don't do that for some reason. All right, let me get off that tyrant. But I'm just telling you. That's something to me when you see this. So these guys are there and they see Jesus talking with this woman, typically, and more so for the ceremonial cleanliness thing and for the way that people will talk. And because of the taboos, they would normally go, hey, what are you doing? You shouldn't be talking to her. That's a Samaritan woman. They're going to all know you're unclean. And they don't. So John, the reason why he includes that is because he knows that that should have been what happened. Not whether it's right or wrong. He just knows that culturally, that's what you would have expected to happen. And then the woman left. I love this. This woman left her water jar. Now, she came there to get what she thought she needed. And when she realized that the very thing she needed most was right there, she didn't need anything else anymore. She said, this water jar is never going to give me what I need most. So it could be anything. It could be like, Jesus, you did say you wanted some water. You can get it yourself. And then she just left. And she goes, and then you see, we're going to see in a minute kind of what she does, but she leaves. She goes into the town, and she told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town, and they made their way to him. Now, this is something really telling, too, because here's what happens. When you come into an encounter with Jesus, when the truth of who Jesus is really hits you, things happen. 
you start to reevaluate things, but you don't just reevaluate. And it doesn't just stay insular. At some point, you're like, I got to talk to somebody about this. And here's the thing. She didn't, have, she didn't have a ton, a ton of theology to share yet. She just had a few things. But the one thing that got her was this. He knew me. He saw me. He told me everything I ever did, good, bad, whatever. He knew me. He saw me. He, he, he empathized with me. And on that level, it made me realize he was somebody. There's never been a man like him that I've met here. And I've been married to five of them. And so she goes and starts talking to these people. Now, how this is what gets me. Something about her was so compelling that they decided to take her words seriously. And then they went out to go see him. Why? She's this unclean woman. She's been married five times. But see, this is something else John is showing you. No matter how dirty you think you are, no matter how dirty society says you are, God says that when you're mine and I'm your shepherd, you never get shunned. You are never cast away as long as you're grafted into me. And so she goes out there and somehow, somehow people were able to see past whatever dirt was on her, to see past whatever shame they thought should be on her. They saw past that and went, okay, I need to go see them. See, she didn't, people have criticized this and they're like, well, you know, she doesn't really give a, a total gospel message here and she doesn't really share the full gospel message here. But here's the thing, sometimes, y'all, there's plenty of times where we don't have all the right answers and we don't even have the right theological position sometimes. There are times all the time where I'm like, man, what I thought three years ago, as the more I study, I'm like, I don't really know if I'm there anymore. That's always gonna happen. If you don't find that happening in your spiritual life, you might be stagnant and don't know it. Because as long as God is still sanctifying us, there are things that are going to be reworked and undone. And so, so with all of that said, when you look at this, this, this woman and you see the things that are starting to happen, there, there's massive changes that are happening. And this woman is now in this place where people can't avoid it. They're like, there, there's some truth here. I don't know where it is, but we've got to go and got to see what's happening. And here's what happens. The moment that truth hits your heart, the moment you start to make the, that transformation starts to happen, the best thing you can do sometimes, even if you don't have all the answers, is just to try to show people Jesus. Yes. They're like, see, I don't have all the answers, but I can take you to them. I, I don't have all the answers, but I can, I can take you to where you can start to read and learn more about them. I may not have the answers, but there are a group of people that might. I want, all I want you to do is be able to come in contact with this living, I think he's the Messiah. Just come and see him. Just come and come close. And so that's all she does. And these folks start coming. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him. They don't get it. Rabbi, eat something, man. These, these, these Chick-fil-A ain't gonna last long. I only got one more Polynesian sauce. Like, you need to hurry up and get these. And look at what he says. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I have food to eat that you don't know about. I think it's interesting that he saw fit to share the food and water with this woman. With these men, he's like, y'all still ain't got it. Y'all still ain't got it. I just had the longest conversation with anybody. Anybody's going to see in the Bible, whenever it's called the Bible. And she got it enough to start telling people. You realize that this is the first example of some sort of evangelism that we see at this point in Jesus' ministry, and it's a woman. And the disciples said to one another, they still don't get it. Could someone have brought him something to eat? I mean, that must be it. Maybe he's, you know, and, 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 and then finally he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish this work. And Jesus told them, don't you say 
They are still four months and there comes, and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Jesus is making a really big point here. He's saying, you guys think this is just about food. You don't understand that much of what you just saw, that lady, she's, this, she's an example of real fruit that's being born. And he's saying that this woman, on some level, whatever faith she had, had already prepped her on some level to be able to encounter the risen Savior. Somebody else laid that foundation. This is big to me because this means that you don't get to just look down on people that you think don't have the right theology. Because in theory, these, these disciples were the ones that had better theology than her. And yet, in the limited theology she had, she was able to be able to see. And by the way, this is the first time Jesus ever calls himself Messiah to anybody. It's to her. The only other time that you see him even doing that is when he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Then Peter says it, and then he says, yep, you're right. But the only person he's flat out said, by the way, I'm the Messiah, before his trial, is this woman. And so he's showing, I came here to do reaping. Sometimes it's sowing. He's like, when, if you guys really understood this, then you would see exactly what this real reaping should look like. You would be rejoicing right now when you saw what that woman just did. And then it finally says this, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. Y'all don't see this as the first evangelist in the Bible? It's super controversial because people don't know what to do with this. That somehow this woman, for those who are like, women shouldn't be saying anything, women shouldn't be talking, something just limits them from being able to do this. Somehow this woman goes, testifies, shares what she saw, shares what she heard, speaks on what she's learned, and a whole whole group of folks become believers and start believing in him because of it. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Jesus is staying in the dirty, filthy town that Jews should never go to. And he's staying there two days. He's using Samaritan toilets. He's, he's eating Samaritan food. He's hanging out with Samaritan men and women, these dirty people who have tainted blood, who don't have good theology, and he's there with them. Two days. He says, and they told the woman, this is what's great. We no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. You see, when real work is done, when true work is done, when real evangelism is done, when we start sharing our encounter with Jesus, here's the thing. People cannot live, they can't sustain off of your testimony. They can't live out their faith based on what you done told them. They can't live out their faith based on what you've been through. They can't live out their faith based on some kind of miracle you had in your life. So you realize that sometimes we don't know any better, and so somebody's down, and you're like, well, let me just tell you my story again. On some level, if we're doing the job correctly, if we're doing the job correctly, then we're like, all I can do is continue to give you Jesus, continue to show you Jesus, because you're going to go through your own stuff, and the only thing that's going to sustain you is who you know Jesus to be, not who I know him to be. So it can start there, because it started there for this woman. It can start there with, okay, tell us what you found out. Tell us what, that's amazing. I'm rejoicing with you. But it can't end there. 
So what do we get from this quickly? Here's, here's what we get from this. More than anything else, if you don't see this in this story, then we miss it. What we see is that Jesus is in the business of transforming these taboos, of destroying these taboos. Of find, he, he, he finds a way. He shows us in so many ways that the things that you thought were, were, were out or culturally wrong or the people that you think are unclean, he finds a way. He says, these are the ones that I'm transforming. These are the ones that I'm calling to myself. In many ways, when you look at this woman and you see uh, her story and you see the fact that Jesus is staying with these Samaritans, in so many ways he's showing, he says, you know, the things that, that if you think about Jesus as the ultimate privileged one, as we started with, here he is, this, he's Jesus, he's God in the flesh. And he says, I see these folks over here, these Samaritans, completely underprivileged compared to the Jews. And he says, here's what I do. And this is what he does for all of us. And we preached this in our series last year. He takes his privilege and he stewards it in such a way that he says, I will give up my privilege in order for you to have it. I will take the privilege of who I am. I will take the privilege of my birthright. I'll take the privilege of my culture. I'll take the privilege of whatever it is you want to look at. Me being a rabbi, me being whatever. I will take that and I will lower myself in such a way so that you indeed will be privileged, ultimately privileged enough to, be, to become my child to become my family, to become my sheep. At some point, we've got to get this in our head. We've got to think, Lord, what does it mean then for me? I, I, I'm, I'm reminded in so many ways of how often, depending on where you're, what your story is, depending on what you've been through, um, all of us have been in a situation where we have been on the underprivileged side and then on the privileged side. If you dig deep enough, you'll see situations where that's the case. I don't care if it's just class, gender, race, religion, what have you. We've all been in some of those situations. And here's what, where we fall. Sometimes we're like, somebody else is dealing with their sense of, of being underprivileged. And the best thing we can do or in our mind is we just compare our underprivileged nature to theirs. Because in that way, we don't really have to feel too much of what they're feeling. In other words, it's like, you know, I'm really going through this. Well, you know, I've been through hard times too. And then we start getting into the oppression Olympics. Jesus could have done that. He's like, you think you, it's bad for you? These Pharisees are out to get me just for who I baptized. I got to deal with that. They're saying things about me right now. My name is not good on these streets. They're saying stuff about me that's completely false. They're trying to kill me. I know he's God. He knows it. They're coming to kill me soon. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't stop and go, I hear how bad things are for you, but let me just tell you how bad it is for me. See, that's not what, that's, that's actually not what empathy looks like. That's not what love looks like. But Jesus says, I'm willing to take, even if I'm in the higher, which he is in the higher privileged position, I'm going to take that privileged position. I'm going to steward in such a way that I will even give up my privilege so that you get to have it. That's the God that we serve. That's what it means. So when we see this woman, my question is, do we see, where do we see ourselves in this story? For a lot of us, if we're trying to figure out who we are, we endeavor to really be the Jesus in the story. But ultimately, it's the woman who actually has this incredible desire to go, I want to know what's true. I'm willing to lay anything that I believe on the table. I'm willing to not only be so transformed by something that's new and true, but I'm willing to be able to share that and tell others. That's what it means. When we look at, the, when we look at what it means to steward privilege, that's what it looks like. So who are we? What do we believe? What do we do with it? 
That's the question. When we see people, what do we see? The people that are close to you, what are you moved to engage in? What does worship look like for you? What does truth look like for you? What does spirit look like for you? What does truth look like for you? Do you separate them? There may be a need for us to be really convicted. Lord, there may be a place where maybe I, I focus on spirit, whatever I think that means, but I'm kind of running from truth. Or maybe I pride myself on truth, but I kind of run from what it means to have the character and the spirit of God. What does it look like for us to be able to look the way Jesus looks here or to be able to have the humility the way that this woman does? Last thing I'll say, when you look at the history that's been written about this woman, this is incredible. If you go throughout some of the Greek uh, 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 theologians throughout from the Eastern Greek church, all the way back to the fourth century, this woman was actually given a name. This woman was given the name Photini. It's a, a name in the Greek that means the enlightened one. And what history, some of these Greek historians have said is that this woman actually went back. She went back to Carthage with her family. Apparently she had two, possibly two sons and a daughter. And she goes down to Carthage and she begins to start to share. After sharing what the scripture says in Samaria, she's sharing with folks here. She's, she's being so influential that the Roman emperor, the wicked Roman emperor Nero, Here's about it. Some scholars say that his daughter may have been converted because of this woman. And he's so frustrated and so angry because of this witness that she is that he has her martyred. And what some of the, what some of the historians tell us and the scholars tell us is that she was thrown right into that very well that she was in before. Now, we don't know for sure what happened here. This is a lot of the extra biblical and history that's there. But what we do know is that going back 1,700 years, there were people that saw fit to honor the testimony of this woman because of the ways in which she said, I just got the most incredible gift in the world and I'm willing to lay it all on the line. So again, what do we do with spirit and truth? What do we move to do with it? May we be people that says, I'm willing to sacrifice any and all things in order to worship God, both in the spirit and in truth, because that is the only way he gets glory out of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us, for your grace, for your mercy. God, as I think about this woman and I think about this, her life and what must have come, come of her, we don't know for sure, but God, whatever had to come of her, we do see even in the text that you have changed. You change lives. You change the intentions of the heart. You move us to a place where we're willing to give up anything that's not of you, anything we think, any way that we live, anything that we do. And we do it in such a way, Father, to be able to bring real glory to you. But God, I pray that even now as we have, uh, if we're honest with our hearts and we're honest with the things that we think, God, there are places in our, in, our, in our lives that can be very difficult to admit. Maybe we're not living in truth. God, maybe there are places where we're not truly living by your spirit. God, there are places in, when we look at what it means to have the fruit of your spirit. God, we don't, there are times where maybe we think that we know the truth, but we don't have the patience. We don't have the long suffering. We don't have the joy of the Lord. We don't have so many things that are just, just lacking. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us those things, that you would use the community of God's people to do so. God, I pray that we would have a deep humility 
on both sides, whether we have the truth or whether there's something that's not true. I pray that we would have, we would have a humility to hear and we would have a humility to speak and that we would do that with real love. We would do that with an ultimate desire to see you magnified. Not us be, uh, being happy that we have truth or being happy that we're right, but Lord, that we can be happy because you're good. God, I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.